Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. This week, we talk race and identity with the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah and ravens, yes, you heard me right, with a man whose professional identity has been tied up with these magnificent birds for many years. So first, Kwame Anthony Appiah has been ruffling feathers all over the world. In his latest book, he describes how he's been taken for an Ethiopian in Rome, a Maghrebi in Paris, and a Brazilian in Sao Paulo. When he tells London cabbies that he was born in the city, he writes, that's not what they really want to know. What they mean to ask is where my family came from originally. Born in London, raised in Ghana, and educated in Cambridge, Appear draws on all the various elements of his own heritage as he explores identity in his new book, The Lies That Bind. When he came into the studio to talk to Richard Lee, he started with the thorny question of race. Why did so many thinkers in the West fall for the wrong-headed notion that people could be divided into categories defined by racial origins? Well, one reason they fell for it, I think, is because we're prone to thinking of that sort. We're prone to this identitarian thinking. We're prone to thinking that if we've got a distinction in the world, it corresponds to some deep thing inside the two groups, blacks or whites or men or women, that there's some deep thing inside each of them, an essence that explains why they're different from one another. And so it's an error we fall into over and over again. What's interesting is that on the one hand, of course, people have always thought of people as coming in kinds people of there were there were Phoenicians and Greeks there were Canaanites and Israelites there were Han and non-Han Chinese long before any of this stuff uh, that I'm talking about was was underway uh, in terms of theory but I think that what's distinctive about what happened to race sort of starting in the mid-18th century in Europe is that it shifted away from being just another of these ways of classifying people so these were Africans Negroes uh, in a more I would say, biological direction, so that by the turn of the 19th century, by 1800, people are thinking, first of all, a new thought, which is that, well, human beings are just another kind of animal. That is, there's a new science of biology underway, and we're part of it. We're not separate from nature. We're a part of nature. And second, race is central to the understanding of human biology. It's those two things at the same time that, that, yeah. that, that gives rise to the problem. Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, now... 
it wasn't a bad idea to look for some explanation of the differences between people. That's, a, that's an interesting question. A bunch of people come along you've never seen before. They seem different in, in appearance. They're also different in behavior. You might want to have a theory about that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Unfortunately, the development of these theories occurred at the same time as the slave trade was reaching its peak. And the theory that got to be popular, I think, and I'm just borrowing from historians who've thought about this, came to be popular in part because it made the slave trade less awful looking. I mean, the slave trade was objectively awful looking given the way the Africans who were treated in the, in the passage across the Atlantic and when they got to the other side. And what this theory did was to say they're naturally different from us. In fact, they're inferior from us. So it isn't like treating us in that way. And even someone as you know, distinguished intellectual Thomas Jefferson, for example, apparently genuinely believed that uh, black people were less susceptible to pain than white people. And so, of course, it was less painful for them to be whipped uh, than it was for white people. It's a kind of convenient way of explaining the inequalities that were making right. rich. Right. But as you say, we're kind of uh, we're kind of drawn to these kind of divisions, even though they may be kind of based on sand, because of a natural tendency towards essentialism. What is the, what is the appeal? Why is it such a, a common error? Well, I think that the idea that you should look for something deep to explain the superficial similarities of groups of, actually not just people, but organisms, is one that uh, babies come programmed with. You don't have to teach them to do it. They'll do it anyway. They'll be looking for essences there's some lovely experiments in developmental psychology where you, you invent a category. Um, you just point to pictures and you put, say, there's a, the word they used was zarpy. There's a zarpy. Here's a zarpy. And after a couple of days, if you point to another, and, and these are pictures of brown people and black people and white people and yellow people, so they don't, they're not any super... super any kind of person. Any kind of people. <laughs> some of them are you know, plump and some of them are skinny. Um, but the, the kids get the idea, well, there must be something deep inside them. So... And after a couple of days, once you've done that, if you then ask the kids that you tell the kids that this, you know, this Zarpy doesn't like ice cream and you say, do Zarpies as I like ice cream, they don't say, well, that one doesn't. They say, that's right. No, none of them likes ice cream. They assume that, as it were, they're like each other in, in all sorts of ways where they have no direct evidence of that. All they have is the evidence of one. So I think, you know, there are lots of features of our cognitive architecture that drive us in this pushing direction. Pushing us in this pushing direction. Pushing us in this yeah. direction. And, you know, presumably you can think of reasons why that might have been adaptive. Um, for most of our history as a species, we're traveling around in bands of 100 or so people. And the main challenge, uh, apart from getting everybody fed every day and watered, is competition with other bands. And so... Quickly Keep, forming keeping a the sense, group together, keeping the group keeping, together, keeping it apart yeah. from the others is one of the main cognitive tasks. And uh, the way evolution works is if, if a cognitive task is important for survival, it gets sort of built in. You, know, you might think this is all very regrettable, given that we now live in groups that require solidarities on the scale of hundreds of millions, not of hundreds. And ultimately, I think, of course, we need solidarities on the level of the species, which is billions. But without something like this, we couldn't have made the other kinds of societies we've made. Because it's only because you can get people very quickly to think of somebody else as a fellow something that you can create solidarities on the scale of a nation. A nation is a community of strangers. We don't know each other. But we can be turned into 
into solidarity by this old mechanism that was designed for 100, it turns out, it turns out that it works on a massive scale as well. Scale of millions. Scale of millions. And as a result, nation states became possible, um, you know, organized societies of the post-agricultural kind became possible and so on. So I think you might think of it as a little bit like uh, original sin. I mean, it's it, it defines us. It is a deep part of our history. And it's what's made a lot of things possible. But it has a bad side. It doesn't just tell us who we are, though, as well. Our identities, like religious identities in particular, tell us how we ought to behave. Yes. So, and again, the primary thing there in the case of the, 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 the sort of ancestral bands of humans is the main how we ought to behave, of course, is solidarity. We ought to look after each other. We ought to be good to the insiders and probably bad to the outsiders, or at least not, not good. But you need more... More than that, uh, societies need lots and lots of coordinated behavior in order to, to be successful and survive. And so one of the things that goes with identities is a sense of what I've sometimes called norms of identification, the things that make you, that when you think of your own identity, you think, okay, I'm an X, so I ought to do this, uh, I, uh, or I ought not to do that. I shouldn't, we don't do that we kind don't of do thing. That. Yeah. And also, it can be in the context of others, so it can be, I mustn't let down the side. So uh, I, I should behave well because otherwise people will think badly of, of my kind and I can sort of predict what kind they'll think I'm of uh, in many contexts. But also, you know, deep things. I mean, my, my father was a patriot of a new country. He was already in his 30s when Ghana, his country, was born. And I was born before Ghana, for that matter. So I was three when Ghana was born. But the fact that it was new, the fact that it was made from peoples who had historically had difficult relations with one another, the fact that he came from the Asante Empire, which had been busy dominating and imperializing the other peoples of Ghana when the British arrived, none of that stopped him being profoundly engaged with Ghana as a project. And that meant with other Ghanaians, and that meant with the Ghanaians who were not from the part of Ghana that he was from, who were not Ashanti, people from the north, people from the coast, and so on, and, and from the east over the Bolta River. And it works. And he was so engaged with this project that he, he used to write a column in the local Asante Pioneer. It was called the local newspaper. And, and he once wrote a column which he headlined, um, Is Ghana Worth Dying For? And his answer was yes. And, in, and it was not rhetorical. <laughs> it was not rhetorical on the number of occasions he did things that could easily have led to his being killed because he cared about Ghana. So I think this mechanism has powerful I, I think Ghana's a good thing. <laughs> so I think, I think it has powerful, positive side to it. It allows people who are very diverse. There's, you know, scores of languages in Ghana that are scores of mother tongues, uh, Muslims and Christians, and also now Buddhists and, and, and all kinds of people, Mormons and so on, and people who practice a great variety of traditional religions. And they're all brought together by Ghana. And if they aren't, you can't run a democracy. You describe a way of thinking about nationality as, as a fabric, as something that, that is woven, yes. something that you produce as a process rather than something that needs to be mined out of the ground. Yes, like it's not of, there already. Yeah. Uh, so it has to be made. And the only challenge, I think, to making modern nationalities come from people who think it's already been done, who think that because we're all Germans or because we're all Brits or because we're all French, there's no work to be done. And, and the only work to be done is to make sure that people who aren't French or Germans or Brits are kept out. don't come in, <laughs> or if they do, are heavily 
uh, are heavily indoctrinated into recognizing the superiority of the British way of life or the German way of life or the French way of life. It's essentialism again. It's essentialism about nations. Uh, people want nations to be like that. They want there to be some, the, the expression, the French have this wonderful expression, um, the Francais de Souche, deep French. <laughs> they, they, they proper to, French. Proper French, <laughs> yes, proper French. Um, I gave a talk at the Aristotelian Society in London once about the concept of race. There was a nice older middle class, upper middle class woman at the back at the end. And she kept saying to me, but I don't understand, how can you be British? And I had explained that I had these, you know, that Sir, Sir Christopher Stanlake was my, <laughs> was my Norman ancestor and that my mother had grown up in the Cotswolds and so on. But she, she just had this notion that somehow you couldn't really be British unless you were white. It was perfectly, it wasn't hostile or unfriendly. It was just... That's how the concept that, worked. That was her, her. conviction. Yeah. That was how she thought about it. Uh, and she wasn't saying I should leave or anything. She was just saying, no, but, you know, let's just be, this is muddling if you say that. So I think it's worth reminding people that all these very solid looking nations that are here, even, even uh, Britain or even England, let's say, since <laughs> <laughs> there are all these complications when you think about the rest of the supposedly United Kingdom, is, is, is a melange. Um, you know, we, we talk about Alfred uh, the Great, but uh, when he was around, the Danegeld was running much of the north of England. So there is lots of Danish history here. The Romans obviously conquered Britain and sent lots of people here and were here for a while. Normans came, Jews came from time to time uh, from p uh, persecution in Europe, uh, as did Huguenots, various Poles uh, came at various points, uh, and so on. And um, many of these people had white skin, so they, we may not have noticed that, <laughs> that, they, that they were here in the same way that you noticed the, the brown-skinned people. Or the people who are not brown-skinned but mark themselves off by dress. Mm. So while uh, the Jewish population of London had a particular way of dressing in, in these 18th and uh, 19th centuries, um, they were recognizable on the street every day and people knew that they were Jewish. But if they Dressed the, you know, if they dressed like everybody else, as Benjamin Disraeli did say, you couldn't tell Benjamin Disraeli was Jewish, except that he would keep telling you because he was very proud of it, um, <laughs> just by looking at him, as it were. So, the, so because people sort of think of this as as if there are these ancestral people who've been here all along, and the same is true in France and Germany, they have a harder time figuring out how to assimilate people who don't look like that. And how they might also be part of how the same network be, of connections. Yes. And if, you, no. as you, if, as you mentioned, you, you can think of it as a fabric that's constantly being woven, then it's not so hard. Identity, you argue, doesn't just provide labels or shape our behaviour. It also determines how we're treated by the rest of society. One of the areas where you think identity has been pushed aside rather too much in contrast to religion or race, where it's been made rather too important, um, is class. Is that just basically because of the myth of meritocracy? I think the myth of meritocracy is very powerful. It's worth remembering again that the word meritocracy was coined by Michael Young, um, a great man, a, a friend of my grandparents, and actually, uh, who who invented it uh, when the idea that uh, rewards in in Britain should be allocated according to merit was not very well developed. Let's put it mildly. I mean, it was a very class society. People went to schools that were meant to give them advantages, that it wasn't contingent that, that going to Winchester or Eton was supposed to make your life a more successful life. Uh, and it wasn't contingent that you couldn't get into those places unless you had A, money, point. and B, connections. <laughs> that was the point of it. And it was a class society in a very strong sense. 
After the war, uh, Michael Young was one of the drafters of the Labour Manifesto in 1945 of the campaign to, as far as possible, eradicate the injuries of class. And in that process, the thought was developed that what was really important was to ignore the irrelevant matter of social origins and to focus instead on uh, talent and on effort and to reward the people who had the combinations of talent and effort that would uh, lead them to do the things that we most valued and therefore we paid best. Well, that's certainly better than the old class way of doing things, uh, which is, among other things, not just unfair, but deeply inefficient because it, it wastes huge amounts of talent. But he saw before we'd really tried it what was going to happen if we did do it. And that's what's so brilliant about his work, I think. And this is in the 1950s, 57 or so, in a book where the word meritocracy is invented. What he saw was that if you told a story that that's what you were doing, then instead of the people who had all the honor and the money thinking, well, I didn't, I didn't really deserve this, I'm just the son of a duke, or I'm just somebody who went to Eaton, uh, people would think, I'm, I got here by, on my, by my own merit, so I deserve it. And they'd stop, as it were, thinking of themselves as having any kind of general sense of obligation to, to the society as a whole. They would think that the people who hadn't done well were undeserving or untalented. So the first thing I want to say is that we aren't a meritocracy. Uh, there are lots of ways of demonstrating that. I don't know that it needs demonstrating, given that, uh, given that we still have, for example, all these private schools in this country. It's a bit unclear what the point of them would be if they didn't give people who could afford them advantages. But there's also kind of figures about wealth distribution, income yes. distribution, yes. which are incontroversible. Yes. So just take my, the one that always strikes me. I'm a professor. If you're in the bottom 15% of the United Kingdom's income distribution, the, the precariat, the chance that your child will get into university is about 2 or 3%. Now, I'll give you an American, a comp comparable American figure. The Ivy League, the top East Coast universities uh, in the United States, take more students from the top 1% of the income distribution than from the bottom 60%. <laughs> Another very striking figure. <laughs> so these are astonishing numbers in societies that are that are tr sort of as we're whistling in the dark about class, are pretending that there's none of this mm. is going on. We we know it's going on. It's not that we don't know it's going on, but we have this meritocratic story, and we plug that meritocratic story because we sort of pluck a few working class people and a few black people and a few this is and that's from outside the system and we give them scholarships and so on and so on. and then we say look you know with talent and uh, talent and effort can be recognized from anywhere the dream is possible yes and and it is possible in some logician sense of possible but practically speaking it's going to be impossible for most people say in the precariat so i think we've got to recognize we haven't done it but michael young's genius was to see that even if we did do it there'd be a problem the problem would be that you would be thinking badly of the people at the bottom. And worse than that, because why should they care what you think of them? They'd be thinking badly of themselves. They, they wouldn't have a strong sense of self-respect. And I think the great, um, I'm not against unequal distributions of income and honor. I read a book about honor. I'm in favor of honor. And honor is, is intrinsically something that not everybody can have. But I am against creating a society in which there are people who are persuaded that they are kind of insignificant people that their lives don't matter. Every human life matters, and we need to create societies in which that is not just something we say 
you know, in churches and synagogues and temples and mosques, but that we believe. And there are things you can do to make that real. Obviously, one of them is is not to deny people the basic sources of self-respect, which include access to an education that meets their their needs, uh, decent uh, standard of living, uh, access to health care, and, and so on, all, all the things that a, a decent life uh, requires before you can then go on to think about big questions. So I think we could do that. We're not doing it. And one of the reasons we're not doing it is because we think we've been fair, because we, we, we're pretending we've got a meritocracy in which, therefore, the people who haven't gotten anything have, um, don't deserve it. If we've got identity so very wrong in so many different ways, we've got identity wrong about race, about religion, about class, as you've just been explaining, what do we need to do about it? Well, I should say that something about what I think philosophers are useful for and what they're not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think we're useful for helping people to think about things and to to see things in in a useful light. I don't think it's our job to tell people how to live their lives. Uh, I'm a liberal. I think people have to decide how to live their lives for themselves. You can give them ideas and fiction and movies and, and philosophy, give people ideas about how to live their lives. But one thing that seems to me pretty clear is that some of the damage done by these ways of thinking just derives from the fact that people have these mistaken beliefs. Now, people are astonishingly resistant <laughs> to being persuaded that some of these beliefs are mistaken, as I have discovered. But I'm going to persist in trying to do that part of the job, just to get it clear how much... I would say the main thing is, this is this is a liberatory thought. We're actually freer than these pictures of identity suggest. We don't have to be the men, the white people, the black people, the Catholics, the Mormons, the Jews... Uh, the Westerners, the the Muslims, that these tight pictures of uh, identity tell us we have to be. We can reshape them. We can't reshape them on our own because they're a collective property. They're like the language. I can't make a word in Pache Humpty Dumpty in, in Lewis <laughs> Carroll. I can't make a word mean something. But I can... I can persuade people to stop using words in certain ways. We, we, we did a pretty good successful job of that with the N-word in the United States and probably here too. We don't use it anymore. It was widely used before. That was, a, that was the result of complicated social processes in which lots of people were involved. So we can change, we can change words and we can change identities. Um, we've just been doing that in, a, in, a, in a, I think, a, a mostly liberatory way with respect to gender. We've there were a small number of people, but a significant number of people were very unhappy in the gender system uh, that was uh, strongly binary and said that you had to go with the uh, with the gender that was suggested by your physical body, by your by your sex organs. It turns out that that's very unhappy for some people. I I didn't know that when I was ten. So I, I went along with it with the, with the other system. But now that I know that, I'm perfectly happy. I've been persuaded that we should adjust it so that it doesn't do any damage to my manhood, my masculinity, to allow for, in my view, for trans men. I, I'm happy to, if they want to join the club, let them, as far as I'm concerned. And if they don't want to, that's fine too. Um, so I think it, it, you know, we are freer than the old pictures suggested, but we are not. That doesn't mean we're unconstrained. We're free in the sense that, in in the sense that the only sense in which you know, one can be politically free, which is that one is able to do things with others to change the way things work. 
But is I mean, you say that the job of a philosopher is to clarify concepts, is to help people understand what's at stake. Yes. The example of transgender rights is a very powerful one in this case. I don't think anybody uh, changed their view of transgender rights because of a philosophical argument. It was no. fought for on the streets. Yes. Do we yes. need to do something similar with all of the other issues? Is, is, is philosophy enough? No. Philosophy is never enough. But on the other hand, without philosophy, we can't get to lots of places that I think it would be good to get to. Yes, um, if you want to change the meaning of an identity, you do that. You make the argument, sure, but you, but you need a social movement. The, the, the reshaping of lesbian, gay identities uh, after the Stonewall events was done by creating a movement. It wasn't done by just making abstract arguments, though the abstract arguments played a role, I think. I, I wrote a, a piece about gay marriage a very long time ago in the New York Review of Books at a time when it was thought by many people to be a kind of weird and preposterous thought. I wrote that in the course of a review, I was reviewing some books. I hadn't thought about it very much myself. I'm gay, but I hadn't thought about gay marriage very much at that point. I read these books, I thought, they make a good point. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, that was the sort of thing. It wasn't the only thing. A lot of activism, a lot of legal activity had to go on, a lot of marching and, and uh, gay rights marches and, and uh, celebrations and so on had to go on. But, but, I don't, but I think the intellectual work wasn't irrelevant. It was uh, a kind of a necessary underpinning. Yes. That one of the things that worries me perhaps about this situation that we find ourselves in is that I mean, you say that identity is part of our, a very deep kind of biological evolutionary process to find within a group and against other groups. Is that not, if we are, we are living in this constricted planet, is that not just a fundamental flaw? We just need to get rid of it. Well, as I said, I think there are many contexts in which these identities are useful. So if getting rid of it meant getting rid of identity, I'd say no, there, there wouldn't be any point of that. Getting, trying to get away from the more uh, barbarously <laughs> hostile, uh, aggressive, xenophobic side of many identities, and, and something like xenophobia occurs not just with nations but with other kinds of identities, that would be good. But I mean, the, the identity uh, as a concept is in some sense a sort of othering. It's we are over yes. here and you guys, they are over there. Yes. Is there any way in which that can be anything other than a negative thing in a planet where we all have to somehow get along? I mean, I think, um, just think about gender for just the sort of old-fashioned ways of thinking about gender. Who thinks that that our lives, our relationship lives, would be improved by abandoning the idea that some people, not everybody, are men and women, and that there's some something about the ways in which men and women relate to, to one another that has to do with the fact that they're men and they're women. Um, you could be, there were gender abolitionists in, in some of the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s, but it didn't take, and I think there's a good reason it didn't take, is because there are, there are things that people enjoy about, about gender, and, and though um, it is true that the gender system historically, almost everywhere, has been not just about difference, but about inequality and, and abuse and power, that I think we have done, we haven't by any means anywhere completed this process, but we have begun to put that right, it seems to me. And at the end of that road is the possibility of an egalitarian gender system rather than no gender system at all. I said about class that I, that I, I don't think that you can make the human world work very well, at, uh, at least at the moment, um, without differences in income to incentivize people to do things. I think you can do that without having 
uh, much of the negative side of class. And one way you can do that, of course, is limit, is by limiting the amount of difference you allow by having uh, high levels of taxation on the rich and high levels of provision of basic uh, welfare for the poor. But I don't think it follows from that everybody that we should give up the idea that, that some people are, you know, as it were, managerial and some people are not managerial and, and that sort of thing. Uh, frankly, I don't think we can imagine a world in which we had none of these identities. Um, I, I, in the book, I talk about the big social identities, but it's worth remembering that if you look at my definition of identity and think about it, there are other kinds of identities that are very important for our lives. You have, you belong to a world in which a journalist is an identity, and it comes with very powerful norms, which are currently, in my country, the United States, I hope, saving us from a possibly tyrannous outcome, because journalists are on the forefront of the battle to stop the abuses that uh, President Trump would like to engage in. And things like protecting sources, you know, American journalists, and sure journalists elsewhere too, but American journalists go to prison sometimes to protect sources. Why? It's because they have a strong identification with the profession. It's because they think that that's what a journalist should do to protect sources. And without that, we wouldn't have that protection from the abuses of power, that, that the protection of sources is one of the mechanisms for undermining the abuses of power. So I think... Um, we, we can think of lots of contexts in which not having an identity to latch onto and sort of pull you forward would be a great loss. But, as you say, journalists means then there's non-journalists, and, and journalists can... I'm married to an editor. Uh, <laughs> you know, journalists sometimes talk about other people as if they just don't understand <laughs> what, what they're... and so on. Uh, so two things that help, I think, with not getting going overboard with the othering one is to remember that you're a journalist and I'm not, but we're both men, uh, we're both readers. There are lots of identities that matter to us that we have in common. And when we're fighting and dividing uh, ourselves from one another through one of the identities that we don't share, it's sometimes worth putting up a hand and reminding ourselves of the ones, uh, of, of, the, of relevant ones that we do. And the other is just to say, to, to, to sort of not to be... Sometimes I put it by saying not to let any of your identities go imperial, become the thing that dominates your life. Your whiteness, your blackness, your Englishness, your Catholicism, don't let that kind of trump everything else that you are. Don't, be, don't become a kind of monochrome identity type of person, even if you want to be a monk. Be a monk who also loves music or soccer or something. Don't, don't become monomaniacal about any, any identity. And I think that, that that's a helpful thought. But in the end, we just have to be vigilant against the bad side of, of each kind of identity. Religious people have to be attentive to the dangers of religious bigotry. And nationalists have to be attentive to the dangers of xenophobia. Straight people have to wonder whether they're homophobic and so on. And these are all things that we, we, I mean, everybody risks doing that at some point. That's one of the other things we all have in common, is that all of us are bad about some form of identity, just as all of us can be made to do good things by some, some forms of identity. So I don't want to, I think being against identity is sort of like being against gravity. What we need to do is to learn how to manage it. Richard Lee was talking with Kwame Antonia Peer. His book, The Lies That Bind, is published by LiveWrite. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Brexit Means is back after an extended break for an in-depth look at where the process might go next, if indeed it goes anywhere. With Britain due to leave the EU in less than six months' time, no solution yet in sight to a hard border on the island of Ireland, no clarity whatsoever on the future relationship and tempers starting to fray on both sides of the channel, join me, John Henley, as we ask, can the government's Brexit plan ever really happen and what if it doesn't? Just head over to guardian.com slash podcasts or search for Brexit Means on your favourite podcast app. Now, if you've been to London but are not a native, it's likely that you're one of the three million people who walk across the drawbridge to visit the Tower of London every year. If so, it's more than probable that you will have seen the odd Beefeater more formally known as yeoman guards, in their big black hats and elaborately embroidered frock coats. They're responsible for guarding the Royal Tower, but they also do much more than that, as one of their number, Chris Scaife, reveals in a new book about his life and work as the man who could be seen as holding the fate of Britain in his hands. For Chris is the Raven Master, and according to legend, if ravens leave the tower, it will crumble to dust and great harm will befall the kingdom. So we sent Sean Kane off to see how it's all going. So we've just emerged from the Tower Hill tube station and uh, we're just in a courtyard right next to the Tower of London and it's around about six o'clock in the evening and it's British summertime so the sunset's just starting to hit the walls of the tower and it's incredibly beautiful and it's so funny because it's this little pocket of history in the middle of all these glass skyscrapers and apartment blocks all around it. Now the gates are closed and I can see quite a lot of security outside the gates. Um, There's still some tourists milling around. I think the tower actually closed half an hour ago but we're about to go inside and I can see the top of a beefeater hat actually through the gate and that might be our man Chris. Hello, hello. Hi. We're here to meet this fella. Hiya. Hiya, hiya. Hello. You've got to turn that off when you're coming through here because these, yes. these blokes here will kill you. <laughs> They'll take you around. Hello, my name's uh, Christopher Scaife. I'm the Raven Master at Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress, the Tower of London. Welcome to the Tower. I'm going to give you a thousand years of history starting from 1066. It all began here in the year of 1066 when William the Conqueror invaded England. He came to the Tower of London after 12 years of suppressing the people of England and he decided to build a fortress. One of the fortresses that he built was the Tower of London. It took him 20 years to build that and that is what we have to this day here. 
Now, the fortress has had many uses over the years, and it's been a zoo, a royal menagerie, where we kept animals for 600 years. It is where the coinage of the, the crown jewels, the royal regalia have been kept here, the coinage of the realm. It's been a royal armoury, and of course, we have the ravens of the Tower of London as well. So Chris, thank you so much for having us in what is technically your home as, as well as your workplace. But uh, you've just released your book called The Raven Master and uh, it's all about your life and how you came to hold such a strange and fantastic job. So I suppose let's just start with a question because I know you get asked this all the time and I'm sure listeners are probably wondering it already. How do you become a yeoman warder? To be a yeoman warder here at the Tower of London, you have to have served in the military, uh, in the services, either Army, RAF, Royal Marines or Navy. We have to have done a minimum of 22 years, be the rank of a warrant officer before we retire, or equivalent, and have an exemplary military record, which means we have uh, a medal, which is called a Long Service and Good Conduct Medal, or in my case, 18 years of undetected crime. <laughs> so that is the criteria to be a yeoman warder here. I didn't really have a clue what I was going to do when I left the military. Of course, I was a specialist machine gunner and a drum major during my time in, in the military, and it's, it's not real call for for someone who fires a machine gun and uh, does music all day long uh, in Civvy Street so I decided I had a love for history and I decided that it would be a really nice idea if I applied for this job here. In fact myself and my wife come here before we went to the interview and we walked around the tower and uh, you know I've moved all around the world with my wife and we've gone different places and we come here we sat outside and we looked at the tower for London and went you know what I quite fancy living there and so that's how I applied for the job and uh, went through the interview process. And in terms of living here because it is a huge tourist attraction so you've kind of got people wandering through your front yard all the time what is it like you have described it in the book you say it's a bit a bit like being in a fishbowl but you enjoy it? Yeah absolutely of course I mean I live in the Tower of London we share the Tower of London 361 days a year with the public which is fantastic it's an honor and a privilege to live here but whenever I walk out my house in my uniform someone is watching me and photographing me whenever I go back home I mean the only time I really get is when I'm the, the doors are closed to my house but that is part and parcel of my job and when I go to work I'm in my uniform and I'm doing what I'm doing as a yeoman warder but when I'm out of work, I can just take off my uniform. I kind of blend away. I kind of look at myself as a bit of a coat hanger, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just somebody who actually carries the uniform and the traditions of the Tower of London. I was pleased to read in the book that you have a Ravenclaw beanie, which is the, the best thing I've ever read. <laughs> you put that on and then walk around. <laughs> I wear my Ravenclaw beanie all the time. Obviously, during, during the summer months, I don't. But in the winter months, it, it goes on faithfully. Yeah, I'm a big Harry Potter fan. <laughs> So as you said in the book that, that you don't there's no cages here they have an enclosure to live in so let's go meet the birds okay Correct. right we're going to make our way down water lane and uh, we're going to see if the birds are in their enclosure the wonderful thing for me is that when i'm doing the birds the best part of the time for me is uh either early on in the morning when the sun's just getting up or late at night because there's no one around it's just me and that's wonderful. So uh, we're just going to make our way round the corner here. And uh, round the corner is the raven enclosure. That's where we keep the ravens. And there's a picture of me in there looking very, very old, I might add. <laughs> so we're going to go around here. So there it is there. God, they are big, aren't they? 
They are. Until you come to the Tower of London, the Sea Raven, then most people, most people would have, may have seen one in the wild from a distance or in flight. But until you get really close to them, you don't actually realise how big they are. And they're about two and a half times bigger than a crow. So they're huge. And people are like, oh. I mean, when I first saw them here, I was like, oh my goodness me, they're huge birds. They're like a harpy sometimes. But uh, they're beautiful. I've got used to them over the years. <laughs> so what you have in front of you, we had this designed and developed about two and a half years ago as an enclosure. And, and, and as I mentioned in the book, I don't really like the word cage or aviary because it does mean that they're, they're kind of tied in all the time. But these are free to fly around and, and walk around the tower as much as they want. And, you know, I put them to bed at night time in this enclosure just really to keep them safe at night time because we need to, because of the myths and legends. It's like their home, if you like. So like us at night time, when we've had a hard day's work, we want to go back, we want to have some food, we want to turn the telly on and go to sleep and so this is what the ravens do so over the years I've developed different methods that have allowed me to get the ravens to come in uh, because they want to uh, wherever they are and they, they do and they come back for their food and, and they know that this is their safe haven so the ravens we have here on the left hand side uh, we have the, the only pair of ravens we've got at the moment, which is Erin and, and Rocky. Erin's mm -hmm. one of our noisiest ravens here at the Tower of London. She is a dominant raven, female dominant raven, and uh, she does she does boss the other ravens around a little bit. She, to be honest with you, she's a bit of a nagger, and I, I don't quite know how Rocky actually puts up with her, but he does. <laughs> he kind of follows her around all over the place, but uh, they're, they're paired off together. They're, they're a wonderful pair. And when they're out during the daytime, they're just kind of preening themselves and, and kissing because they have beak kisses and, and just kind of doing the things that, that they like to do. They don't really bother anybody, to be honest with you. So they're a really good pair of ravens. So in the centre of the enclosure, you see there are three ravens together. These are fairly juvenile ravens. We have Harris, we have Grip, and we have a new raven called Poppy. And you can see Poppy standing up there. She has the red band on. Mm -hmm. She came into the tower about six months ago now as a replacement for Moonim. Uh, sadly, we lost Moonim, uh, who's featured quite a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, we lost her due to our old age. And so we had to replace her. And we replaced her with Poppy. Of course, it is the centenary of the end of the First World War this year. And so we thought it'd be a really lovely idea to call her Poppy. She's a little monkey. Uh, she, actually, she actually spent the first part of her life with me at home, uh, living with myself and my wife. And then we introduced her into the enclosure about three or four weeks later. And she's just starting to get used to coming out, meeting the public, etc., etc., getting used to... She's learning habits from the other ravens. And them two up there, Harris and Grip, they're quite naughty. So they're teaching her some bad habits. So I'm going to have to have a word with them, to be honest with you. But uh, now she's doing really, really well. And she's out with the public now. She, she's coming back into her enclosure at night time. She does like feet. So if you do come to the Tower of London, just be careful if, you're, if she's around you. And she likes, she likes biting your feet at the moment. She, she doesn't hurt, but she'll just peck your toes. But she's young and she's a baby. She's a teenager, so she's naughty. But she'll, she'll get out of that very soon. <laughs> and on the end, we, we have Jubilee. So Jubilee is a male raven. Uh, he spends a lot of his time on his own. He was originally partnered with Moonim. But sadly, that, that partnership broke up when she passed away. Now, uh, he, he is on his own at the moment, but he is kind of getting used to another raven that's not down here. Mm. The other raven is Melina. 
and she doesn't live down here in the enclosure she's much more prissy than that she lives in the queen's house and we'll, we'll go up and, and see where she is in a little while but uh, they, they are kind of getting used to each other and, and, and Belina's hanging around with Jubilee and, and then he comes over and hangs around with her and then sometimes Erin goes over with Jubilee so it's a little bit of a soap opera to be honest with you <laughs> but because I've been observing the Ravens for such a long time at the Tower of London I kind of know what they're doing and what they're doing on I could write a story about their lives and what they do here Yes, people should buy the book just for the unfortunate story that happened on your birthday, which is so sad. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a, and it was a terrible night. That was a, a night... I always say, don't hurry a raven. Ravens will do their own thing when they want to do. And, of course, this night, it was my birthday. My wife was taking me out for a meal, local, local area, and so I had to put the birds to bed. It was when we didn't have the enclosure, actually. We had birds that were in night boxes and called them into bed then. And this night, uh, it was drizzly, typical winter's night. Cold, wet, miserable. And I came down here, Melina was nowhere to be seen. So I came down here and there were two birds that weren't the dominant ones that needed to go to bed or they were waiting to go to bed. So I put them to bed first, but the dominant ones were having none of it. And so I ended up climbing up to the top of the White Tower steps and injuring myself quite badly uh, between a log there and anyway, I managed to get the rest of the ravens in the bed and one of them, Lena, decided she wanted to play me up. Of course, bearing in mind, my wife was waiting for me to go out to a restaurant. And so what happened is she actually, she made her way under a uh, staircase, a wooden staircase next to the Wakefield Tower, and she hid underneath. And so I, I walked all around the tower looking for her for absolutely ages. And then I heard a noise, a distinctive uh, clucking sound that she makes to me. It's like a knock-knock sound. It goes like this. And so it's a confident sound that we do to each other. So I realised where she was, and uh, she was in what I call the pit of doom. Now, at that stage, it was the winter, and it was full of water, dead pigeon carcasses, and tourist rubbish. And there was a set of really flimsy steps going down. It's about seven and a half foot deep. And so uh, I thought it'd be a really good idea to get her, because I was running out of time before I went down the steps. So I got down to the third step, and crack, it broke, off I went, rolled into the water, fell into the water, upside down, under the water, and all I can remember is this pigeon carcass floating past my eyes. And I thought to myself then, what am I doing? If this is the preservation of the birds or the kingdom, I just don't know. <laughs> and so I got myself out. But strangely enough, as I'd done that, the sound of the step breaking enticed Melina to come out. So she stood on top of the railing. It's just around the other side here, on top of the railing. She looked down at me and I could see in her eyes that she was just laughing at me. She was going, oh, you stupid man. <laughs> but I was stuck in there because I didn't have my phone on me. I was soaking with water. I'd bruised the inside of my legs from my previous encounter with Erin. And uh, I couldn't get out, so I was stuck in there for nearly half an hour before I managed to put the steps together and, and gingerly step out and get out. I didn't go out that night. I had baked beans on toast at home, but my wife forgave me. <laughs> Happy birthday. Happy birthday, yeah. <laughs> so you describe in the book that it's like letting seven kids loose in a supermarket and then they all run to a different aisle and you just sort of have to be aware of what they're all doing and where they are all at all times. Um, but you're very, very specific and clear about the fact that these are wild animals that... Um, you do leave them to do what they want to do um, and you just supervise them but one crucial thing which I think a lot of people may not understand is that their wings aren't clipped they're not sort of flightless they're not forced to stay here can you sort of explain how you, you're sort of able to monitor their flight yeah certainly uh, 
So I've been looking after the Ravens now for 12 years, 12 and a half years, and about six or seven years as the Raven Master. And over the years, I've been observing and looking at the Ravens. And previously before, uh, we used to clip up their flight feathers. So their primary and secondary flight feathers, we'd take off, and that would ground them. And, and so that caused a lot of problems over the years because we have predators here at the Tower of London, i.e. foxes, and of course the ravens can't fly. So uh, there was an incident one time when uh, one of the ravens, I wasn't a raven master at the time, I was one of the assistants, uh, but I was on duty that day, jumped off the top of the White Tower. It is in, it is in the book. And one of the ravens, unfortunately, because we, we trimmed up such a lot, uh, hit the floor and actually died in my arms. It's quite a sad story. Uh, and, I, and I thought to myself then, once I take over as Raven Master, I'm going to change how we do this. And so, obviously, the tower is steeped in myth and legend. One such legend reminds us that should the ravens leave the Tower of London, will crumble into dust, a great harm will befall the kingdom. Uh, this legend came about in 1660 when King Charles II was restored to the throne of England. He came here to see some works that were taking place. And uh, the, at the time, the royal astronomer, a man by the name of John Flamsteed, had a telescope on top of the White Tower. Of course, originally, he moved to Greenwich. And uh, so there were ravens around London that period of time and they would have settled in, in the high turrets of the, the Tower of London. And of course they was interfering with his calculations. And so uh, he asked the king whether he could get rid of them. And the king said, yeah, of course you can. And then someone turned around to the king and said, Squire, if you get rid of the ravens, the Tower of London will crumble into dust and a great harm will befall the kingdom. Of course, you've got to remember, King Charles II had just come onto the throne. His father, King Charles I, had been executed. There'd been a plague in London in 1665, Great Fire of London in 1666. So you can imagine him going, oh, we better keep some ravens here. So we'll keep six. So that is the legend. That is the myth and legend. And so I needed to keep the ravens here, and I still do. But I also want them to have as much quality of life here as I can possibly give them. And I don't want them to fall off buildings, fall out of trees, get eaten by foxes. And so I decided to look at how I could change that to give them much more freedom of movement. And I, it's, it's taken me a couple of years, you know, trial and error. You know, some of the ravens, one of them left for a week before and flew off for a week and, and, and now even now the ravens can fly around the Tower of London and they, they do they, then and some of them stay out at night times and, and you see them on the rooftops when you come here so I have been able to give them much more freedom of movement around the tower. You can hear them making lots sound. They have lots of vocalisations that they make to each other. What I don't do is encourage the new ravens when we get here to speak human. Uh, one of the reasons being we have so many people here at the Tower of London that I don't really want them picking up words that we shouldn't really be saying. And they do get asked to do that quite often. So, you know, the ravens have a wonderful vocabulary of their own and they, they, they you know, they can have, in, depending on the environment that they come from, and some of the ravens, they've actually got accents from wherever they are around the world and stuff like that. And so here they've got a bit of a London accent, to be honest with these ravens. Like, All right, how you doing? And, and so what I do here is I, I allow them to just speak their own language and I speak their language, I, I say I speak Ravenish, which is great because I can get away with making silly sounds to the public when they come in. The children love it, the adults think I'm mad. And so I just let the ravens actually speak their own language. We did have a raven here once that did say a few words. Uh, his name was Thor and he was the one that sadly passed away in my arms. And uh, he would say good morning and stuff like that. But he actually, ravens are really good at mimicking sounds. And, and depending on where they are, you know, I've heard them mimicking washing machines and car horns and, and all sorts of stuff. Traffic light signals, all sorts of stuff. But here I let them communicate between themselves as they should do. 
I did really love the story about Thor going up to Vladimir Putin while he was here on an official visit and saying, good morning. Yeah, it was it was a little bit before my time, actually. It was it was uh, he, he actually came to visit the tower when one of my previous Raven Masters was here and he was walking around with his entourage, as they do. And he was walking up the, the tower, the White Tower steps to go into the into the White Tower. And Thor was actually sitting on the top of the steps there. And as he walked past and Thor went, good morning. He <laughs> was quite surprised that a Raven had said good morning to him. <laughs> Poppy, what are you doing? What are you doing, oh, young Poppy's lady? Yeah, she's having a bit of a nose. She's going, what can I do here? So we're just walking around the tower now. Uh, as you can see, it's nice and quiet. Yeah. It's lovely at this time. You know, this, this place in the summer months is, is quite busy. You know? Yes. It's the, you'll be surprised how many people that come to the Tower of London and visit. It's, you know, we've got the crown jewels here. We've got Henry VIII's armour. We've got the Yeoman Water guided tours. It's got absolutely everything here that you need. I kind of look at the Tower of London as, as the beating heart of England. Yeah. Where, are we? Where are we standing right now? We're standing on Tower Green, which is the village green to the Tower of London. And what you actually see in front of you here is uh, Melina. She's the 13-year-old raven, the oldest raven at the moment. And she's with two of her friends. So them two people that she has there are Ronnie and Reggie. They're mentioned in the book. So they, they've been hanging around here for a couple of years now. They've just had babies, actually. I don't know where the babies are. They're kicking around somewhere. And so these magpies help me to clean up the enclosure because I leave it open during the daytime. They go in and pick up all the old bits of meat and that. And she actually plays with them. You can see, you know, when she was there, she was inter interacting with them. And she does. She does interact with magpies and the crows as well. We're just going to pop over the other side of this water fountain here. And we're going to see if we can get a little bit closer to her. doing still dressed daddy you should be you should be in your civvies when you come and see me and so she, she, she's going to start making her way thinking about going to bed now she doesn't live with the other ravens she lives in an enclosure on her own and uh, if you look over to your left hand side you'll see the queen's house and uh, this is lived in by the constable of the tower of london and graciously melina lives in there as well and she allows the constable to live in there with his family now if you look over there you can see two windows next to the green doors and you see a ladder going up into a box. She lives in there. Traditionally that's been an, a raven box, a raven enclosure now for about, uh, since 1946 in fact. And so she's been in there about seven or eight years. She loves it in there. She doesn't want to go into the enclosure. I have tried her in there with other ravens as well. She's not interested. That's, where, that's her palace over there. She's a princess. She lives in a royal palace on her own. <laughs> But uh, she, she's going to start making her way, just getting ready now. She, uh, I think she's just gone into her favourite tree, the holly tree. Did you see her going into the holly tree? Yeah. Okay, she, right. she'll go into there. Uh, she, she may well fly up and go onto the rooftops in a moment. We, we'll see what she does. There she goes, and she's going up onto the rooftop now. So she, she, she's got that. She should spend their night up there now. She's just flown past us now and gone up to there. So she's, she's starting to settle down for the night. I mean, I, I love Merlina because I see her a lot on Twitter. You take a lot of photos and uh, videos of her, which is always really lovely to see. You know, incredibly, people are so fascinated with the connection, human-animal connection that I have with the ravens. And it's purely because I spend absolutely so much time with them. I spend more time with the ravens, I think, than I do at home. Uh, I think my wife is quite pleased with that sometimes, to be honest with you. <laughs> 
you mentioned before that there is this myth about the Tower of London and the Raven's presence in it and that there's the story around Charles II and you've actually done some research into this and you have your own theory as to where the myth of the Ravens being at the Tower of London and how they're crucial or, or London will before great tragedy if they leave could you explain your theory because i really like it and it does actually sound very very uh, realistic to me yeah okay so uh, there was a lot of research done by a friend of mine a, a guy called boyer Sachs, and he wrote a book called the city of ravens and he mentioned in that book that uh, the ravens legend wasn't quite as old as we thought it was so obviously i done some research into that as well and i come up to the same conclusion as there was no ravens here before 1880 and so that would make it a fairly modern myth well in the fact that that was the end of the victorian period really and so there was no i've never found any historical evidence to prove that ravens were here at the tower of london before about 1880 and so around about 1883 there was a pictorial came out it was about a little girl called prue visited the tower and it's the first picture really we have that shows ravens obviously with this little girl and a yeoman warder so there was a connection there and the connection was probably made around about the time that the scaffold that the scaffold site was put in so the, the site of execution was put in as a memorial for those who lost their lives here at the tower of london and so what better way to to enhance the visitor experience as to have the scaffold site here uh, some ravens around that that there was a, a gothic revivalism going on in that period of time uh, but some ravens around the scaffold site and say look these are the ancestors of the ravens that were here when queen anne boleyn was executed or these are the souls of the dearly departed so it was kind of for that reason that they was probably brought in maybe three or four of them to start off with so really it's probably a bit of gothic marketing basically yes yes it could be <laughs> So a plural of ravens is an unkindness or a conspiracy, which are both not really very nice words. Um, and ravens have long had an association with tricksters and death, obviously, because they like a bit of blood. Um, but it's not necessarily fair, is it, in terms of the, the picture of this sort of evil presence that lurks whenever death is nearby. Yeah, and we humans have done that uh, Previously, before that, ravens were revered. I mean, if you look at the Nordic uh, stories with Odin having Moonin and Hugin sitting on his shoulders, sending them out to the world to go and find information. So they, they were really looked at in the early days as deities. It wasn't really until a period of time when agriculture changed as our perception of ravens changed because they were seen rather than being seen as deities and gods to help gods they were actually looked at as vermin because they were destroying crops and and farmsteads and stuff like that until about a period uh, around about 1830 certainly in London where there were really truly very very few ravens left in London but yeah they are associated with, with the darker side of life and and they still have that and, and I don't dismiss that because they are I mean they are they're beautiful I mean they're not black they are iridescent so they have so many different colors and I think I mentioned about eight or nine different colors of what I call slate black black all sorts of blacks in the book uh, so it very much depends on how you look at them but you know they are smart birds 
and they have a tendency to go where food is. If you look at them, what they do in the wild and how they follow bears, wolves, foxes to areas of food source as well, humans would use them to, to especially the the, uh, the Americans, the indigenous people of America, would use the, the, the ravens uh, to their best advantage to find food in the wintertime because they knew that ravens were flying up high, they could be seen in the skies and the ravens would then go down and follow the animals that were going to kill the, the food and, and etc etc. So we've used them for navigation as well but one of the things that we've also seen and noticed that they, they kind of like a good old battle to be honest with you and, and Roman legions going into war and stuff like that saw ravens flying around their heads and they kind of presumed when they saw a bunch of men together that there was going to be a fight and a scrap and a scrap leaves meat and that's why ravens got associated with death because of the battlefields and the association with that yeah. <laughs> I wanted people to come in, I wanted to read the book and just enjoy reading it. It's a, it's a really easy read, it's very short and you can open up a page or two and read a chapter and then kind of put it down and it follows on my day throughout my, my working day so I'll get you up at first light and we make our way throughout the day and I'll tell you the stories and we'll talk about the birds and we go down to my store and we'll get the food out and I'll tell you what they eat and we'll go and have a look at the enclosure and we'll go and look at the birds, we'll find out about all their personalities. I talk about the legends, the myths, the stories, not just here at the Tower of London but all around the world and in the evening time after we've had a pint in the pub we're going to put them to bed and it, it kind of entices you to follow me around in the day and just kind of enjoy walking around with me and, and letting me do what I do every single day. It's a good girl. So we're just going to say good night to Melina, she's up, she's up on the rooftop there, that is her sleeping area. I just, just love it here, look, look at it, it's so peaceful. Yeah. You know, the, it's like a little oasis in the metropolis of London, yeah. isn't it? So we're standing outside the Tower of London now. Chris has gone back inside and he's going to have some tea. He's had a very long day and he's going to take off his hat and shoes and uh, settle in for a night with his wife. It's so strange being outside of it now because when you're in, Chris is exactly right, it is kind of a haven those walls are really soundproofed because you basically can't hear the main road and you can hear it now we're standing outside but it's such a marvelous little piece of history um the fact that it's still standing you know a thousand years later you know you can't help but imagine that perhaps it will still be there in a thousand years and there will still be another raven master i really hope so john kane there talking to chris scaife the Raven Master is out with Fourth Estate now. Next week, the poets Kate Tempest and Don Patterson drop in for a chat about Kate's new collection, Running Upon the Wires. Plus, we'll have the latest on the Booker Prize winner. Until then, as ever, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. And join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. For now, from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye. And thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.